Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we proclaim your lordship even tonight, and we proclaim the lordship of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have declared him to be Lord in our life. And Father, I just thank you that the day is coming, and coming soon, when his lordship is going to be seen on the face of this earth. Father, we testify tonight that indeed he is Lord. He is the one who holds the nations in his hand. He is the one who is king of heaven and of earth. Praise your wonderful name. Father, we're met together tonight to explore his lordship, to explore his kingship. And we know that unless the Holy Spirit reveals it, then we are just really wasting our time. Father, we know it's the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. So I pray in Jesus' name that it's going to be the Holy Spirit that is heard tonight. Father, that you will just take the things that we study together and, Father, just illumine them. And, Father, take them into our human spirits, Father, that we might be strengthened in the inner man by these things. Father, we just want to live lives that are victorious and glorifying to you. Father, may tonight be a step towards the goal of the upward calling in Jesus Christ. Oh, we praise you and we thank you for all your mercy to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We begin tonight the fourth series of Bible studies, and I've called this particular group Things to Come. You remember in the basic Bible course number three, we dealt with prophecy that had already been fulfilled. Fulfilled prophecy. Now we move forward into the future, and we start seeing prophecies that have not as yet been fulfilled here in 1980. Incidentally, before we reach the end of this course, some of the things we're discussing may have been fulfilled, but at the moment they're not fulfilled. So they are, as at the moment, future. I think uh, we as Christians sometimes forget just the type of fearful world that we live in. To the majority of non-Christians outside, um, the order of events seems rather chaotic. They see a nation becoming top nation over here. They see a nation becoming underdog over here. Ten years later, it all seems to be reversed. It's a good time one year for this country. It's a bad time the next year for the same country. And, and so they see a sort of tennis match going on as far as the, the earth is concerned. They see an increase in world disorder. They see an increase in social disorder, and the majority of non-Christians really have no idea that it's all planned and that it's all in the hands of the most glorious planner. To them, it's haphazard. To them, it's simply a matter of whim. You know, uh, it just happens by a lucky streak, they would say, that this nation has managed to rise up against the other nation. Two nations fight together. Who knows which side is going to win? And there they are, say living in Britain at the moment, at the moment they have peace. But there are question marks over the future. You'll find that most non-Christians deal with this through a series of what I call sublimation. They switch the television on double loud and uh, let it mesmerize them to sleep, you know. Or they uh, indulge themselves in some, some passion or other. They get involved in social services or they get involved in education and throw themselves in these things, anything, as long as they don't have to stop and think actually what is going to happen as far as the world is concerned. They are gripped with fear. I think a lot of non-Christians would think that death comes as a relief, except they're afraid of death as well. They really don't know. The number of people I have actually worked with who will say that they don't know what type of world they're bringing their children into uh, is, is almost countless. Well, that's tragic enough, but the real tragedy is when you've got Christians who are as fearful as non-Christians about the future. And there are some Christians around, and they don't know that the one who loves them with all his heart happens to be in charge of this earthly arena. And they get nervous, they, they see the increased social disorder, they wonder whether it's going to affect them, and Lord, are you really in control? And they find the same tension, the same disturbance that the non-Christians have. Now, such a state of affairs is appalling, and I don't think that, that there are any Christians in this room um, who would actually like that type of situation, that your beloved brothers and sisters are suffering with fear and doubt over the future. This fourth course is designed to help those people along. 
All right? It's designed specifically to fill the gap, for I have generally found that people who are nervous of the future are people who are ignorant of God's prophetic timetable for, the, for this human planet. That's what I've generally found. By the end of this course, you will not be ignorant. You will know exactly the way that we are going to go. Now, could I also say, by way of introduction, we are taking the basis of this course as the literal, normal, or plain interpretation of Scripture, including the prophetic passages. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, could I please say that you must get, as soon as possible, number three tape of the last series, in which I discuss this whole issue, should prophetic passages be taken literally or not? And I justify the stand that we're taking in this course. Those of you who may want more detail, please go to the special tapes on called The Millennial Issue, all right, uh, in which I give far more detail than I do on the basic tape. But I make no apologies today. We're taking prophetic passages as they stand. In other words, we're letting them mean what they say, as we do, by the way, the rest of the Bible. All right, praise God. Now that's what we're, we're going to do. Today, however, I'm going to take a sweep of history as far as the Bible is concerned, and we're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to take a general sweep right through up to the present time, and then on into the future. I don't know how much or how far we're going to reach, because there's a very big detour I'm going to take concerning the Tower of Babel, but we're going to begin anyway and trust that we might reach the end of the picture. I'm not actually trying to fill in details tonight. I'm just giving the overall plan. All right. The first big division, as, as far as history is concerned, biblically, is covered in the Bible by these sections, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11, inclusive. And believe it or not, that particular section of the Bible deals with 2,000 years of the history of mankind. 2,000 years enclosed within 11 fairly short chapters of the Bible. To show you just how short they are, the rest of the Old Testament covers the next 2,000 years. But 11 chapters covers 2,000 years. It's even worse than that, actually, because of these 11 chapters, seven of them deal with the events that occur within about a year or two. So that actually, we get four chapters that deal with most of the first 2,000 years. Uh, to show you what I mean, chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis deal with the six days of creation. Chapter 3 deals with the fall of man. That's three chapters. And then there are four on Noah's flood, which lasted one solar year. Now that's seven chapters out of the 11, and the other four deal with the rest. Now I think that's quite obvious to anyone that it must be a fairly potted history. And the glory of God is this, is seen in this, that in these 11 chapters, we have as much as we need to know, no more, but certainly no less. For us, these are the seedbed chapters of the Bible. We've got to glean everything we can from them. All right? Now, it's terribly important. I want to start tonight in Genesis chapter 4 and to see a very important principle concerning the development of cities. You may think it's an odd place to begin. You'll understand as we develop it. And I want to go to chapter 4. And beginning verse 13, where, of course, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Now, you know, Adam and Eve began having children. Two of their children were called Cain and Abel. They had plenty of others, but here are two. And Cain, because of jealousy, rose up and he murdered his brother Abel. And, of course, the blood of Abel, Abel spilt into the ground and it cried for vengeance, as we're told in the Bible. And God comes along and he says to Cain, Cain, I've heard the cry of your brother's blood. You are now exiled from the group of people who've been established. Let's read it. Um, I said verse 13. Let's go above to verse 9. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? He said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, 
which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. All right? Murder has been committed. This is staggering, really, you see, because at this point, humanity is united. You have only one family on the face of this earth. One family. They speak the same language. They've got exactly the same culture. They've got an almost perfect environment. It's starting to go down after the fall, but still it, it's pretty good. But despite all of those things, there is godlessness beginning to break out. And Cain stands to us as the first example of extreme godlessness and apostasy on the face of the earth. All right? Other than the fall, that is. This is after the fall. And look what God's judgment is on Cain. He says this, verse 11, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. You're exiled, and when you start plowing the land, it's not going to give forth terribly much produce. You're going to find every person is going to be against you that you meet. And Cain immediately complains, verse 13. Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. From thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And God moves in in grace, saying that is perfectly true. So Cain, I'm going to protect you, he says. My protection's going to be upon you. Look what it says. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That's God's mark of protection. And the Lord set a mark. We don't know what it was, but it was some form of identity mark on, on Cain to show that he was God's man, that God personally was involved in his safekeeping, just as a warning to anyone who might try anything with Cain. And he put a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain then goes out, he takes his wife, who is of course one of the daughters of Adam and Eve, and therefore his sister, takes her, goes out, and starts producing a family outside. Now imagine how vulnerable that man is. There he is, he's only got God to trust and God's promises. God said he will look after him. He's got to work hard, and he's got to uh, really... Uh, be dependent upon the Lord for any produce that the land should bring forth. And Cain goes out and he finds that that is not to his liking. Let's read on. Verse 16. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch. And look at this. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And people who read this phrase, they just zip through that little section. Oh, the foundation of cities. I assure you, by the way, that geographers do not accept this story of the foundation of cities. Why is it that when Cain had a child, Enoch, he went out and he built a city? I'll tell you what it was. It was rank apostasy. For what Cain was saying is, God, you've promised to protect me, but I don't trust you. So I'm going to build my own defenses, thank you very much. And he went out, he built a few houses, and he put a wall all the way around, and it was the first city on the face of this earth. All the other dwellers of the land, they were farming communities, trusting God, trusting him that the earth would continue to give forth, trusting him that the sun would continue to shine, trusting him that the mist was going to come up from the land and water the earth, trusting him that he would be their protection. But Cain, oh no, God is not sufficient uh, insurance as far as Cain is concerned. Here is the first time that man tries to be totally independent as far as God is concerned. Very convenient. He trusts on the walls now for his protection. He's going to try and establish a little system that will give him some leeway, you know, that if a drought comes, well, he's going to be all right in his little city. If famine comes, he's going to be all right in his little city. No trusting of God as far as that is concerned. And you go down and it says, And Enoch was born, and unto Enoch was born Irad, and the rest of the family developed. It's rather interesting, by the way, that in the ancient world, the, the word for the city 
is the word Uruk, U-R-U-K. And Uruk actually comes from the name Enoch. All right? So, in other words, we can see in the language of the ancient world that cities and Enoch go hand in hand together. This is not the famous Enoch, by the way, who was not. This is not that one. This is another one. Okay. Gradually, communities developed. Here they are. They're united. They've got a form of protection. And what happens? Do you know what happens? Such godlessness breaks out on the face of this earth. Such apostasy, such demonism breaks out that God finally looks down. And when he looks down, he can only find eight righteous souls on the face of this earth. There's a major population explosion, and God has to come along, and he has to destroy every single one of them, except for the eight, with a universal flood. You see? So much for their cities. Their cities are just washed away by the flood. They're trying to be independent of God, and they fail. All right, let's go to the other side of the flood, to Genesis 10, and let's have a look at what happens in Genesis 10. We've got the generations of Noah, of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you go down to verse 6, you've got the sons of Ham. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim, and Phut and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah, and Sabta and Rama and Sabteca. And the sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. And verse 8, and Cush begat Nimrod. Here he is. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. We are now at the level of the grandchildren. That's all. And he begins to be a mighty one in the earth. And look at his description that follows, verse 9. He was a mighty hunter, it says in the King James, before the Lord. Except it's not before the Lord, it's against the Lord. Or in defiance of the Lord. We have here a man, Nimrod, whose very name means rebellion, who is saying... I now am going to be the king of the earth, not our God. And what happens? Verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, a city, and Erech, and Achad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. Shinar is the land of Babylon, what we call the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And here is Nimrod, and he establishes cities in this part of the world. It goes on, by the way, out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kala, and so it goes on. Now, there is a mention of cities. What is it? It's a major sign of apostasy. You say, now hold on, a major sign of apostasy? I don't see a major sign of apostasy in these verses. No. But we do in chapter 11. And if you would turn just over to Genesis and chapter 11, let's have a study of this and see what really is behind the establishment of these, these cities. And then you'll understand why I'm beginning the course with this. Remember Hebrew form. In Hebrew form, often you get a chapter which tells you what actually occurred, and the next chapter goes back and fills in the details. And chapter 11 here actually comes before chapter 10, uh, verse 5. How do we know that? Read verse 1. And the whole earth, it says, was of one language and one speech. If you go back to Genesis 10, verse 5, you'll notice this statement. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue, after his families, in their nations. In other words, Genesis 10 gives the overall picture. Genesis 11 goes back to fill in the details. And in Genesis chapter 11, we have the apostasy that led to the splitting up of all the peoples of the earth. Begin verse 1 again. And the whole earth was of one language. Now we know what a language is. They all spoke the same language on the earth. But do you notice how it goes on? And of one speech. Now, why does it say speech there? This tells us something that's terribly important. Speech was their culture. Speech was the way that they thought. When you speak in a language, you communicate ideas. And what it's saying is here, they not only spoke the same language, they have the same ideas behind their language as well. Today, on the face of the earth, 
we have many groups of people who speak the same language, but they're all different in their culture. You know, the Argentinians and the Chileans, they speak the same language, Spanish, but they're always fighting against one another. Here, you've got more unity than that. They speak the same language, they've got the same culture, the same outlook. They are one people on the face of the earth. Mm. Right. Verse 2, And it came to pass, as they journeyed literally to the east, remember, they came out of the ark, which was perched on Ararat. They came down, and what had God said to them? He said, Go, multiply, be fruitful, fill the whole earth. In other words, you people, scatter, please. And what did they do? They all liked one another. Great. They encamped, and they started having children. They liked the family atmosphere. So down they came from the mountains, followed the rivers down, and where did they arrive? In the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the land of Shinar, or Babylon, as it's called. So it came to pass, as they journeyed to the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now God had said, don't dwell there, scatter. They said, no, we quite like it here. You know, good climate, uh, nice and flat, quite fertile ground. I think we can really do something at this point. And what did they do? Verse 3. They said to one another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And that statement is apostasy. God said, scatter, and they said, no, sir, thank you very much. No. Man is going to be the important thing, and we are going to establish again man's independent rule on the face of the earth. And how did they do it? The way that Cain did it. Let's build us a city. Let's get these walls up, right? Let's uh, get the food in, let's get the water in, and let's see if God can deal with us. But there was a difference between this city and the city that Cain built. And what was that? They didn't just build a city, they built a tower. That's what they began to build. Oh, what's this tower that they've started building? I think the, this is so simple that the vast majority of Christians have never understood it. They've never got it. Isn't it funny? The complex things we can understand. The simple ones, we sort of trip over. and We don't notice they're there. Why is it they built a tower? You'll notice, by the way, Cain didn't build a tower, but these people built a tower. I'll tell you why. These people knew that God had interrupted man's plans through a universal flood. So they thought, now... God's promised he's not going to flood the earth again. But I don't believe him. Do you believe him? I don't believe him. Exactly what Cain did. No, no, don't believe him. Right. So it's likely that if we start going our own way, God's going to try and stop us again with a flood. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll build a huge tower, the top of which will stick out the top of the flood. And we'll all go up there if he tries it. And we will get right through the flood and he won't be able to affect us. And that's exactly what they started to do. And this tower stands as an example of rank disobedience. It is one of the most evil things that man has ever devised. It is an attempt by man to be totally independent as far as God is concerned. Do you see how devastating? It's so easy, isn't it? Of course that's what they were doing. God had promised he wouldn't uh, ever flood the earth. And here they are, making sure that God would have nothing to do with humanity at all. I want you to know something that in this little section of the Bible, which is included because we need it to be included, a movement was begun which is still in our land today and which is going to become obvious in the future. This is like a stream which begins trickling down the hillside here, has gained momentum, has gained more and more water, and in our day is a mighty river, let alone the day that is to come. But it's hidden. It is an attempt by man to be independent on every level of God's action. In the political realm, an independence of God. In the commercial realm, an independence of God. And in the religious realm, an independence of an intervening God. And it's so interesting, we're going to study it later on in the course, this is called Mystery Babylon. 
Mystery Babylon. You'll find that phrase in Revelation 17. And some people have said, oh, Babylon's going to be rebuilt. Oh, a city's going to be rebuilt. Oh, no. The word mystery here means something that's hidden until it's revealed all of a sudden. And the point in Revelation is that this thing's been going on and the people of the earth haven't quite realized that it's still around. Do you know, Christians don't realize this is still around. That actually much of history is dominated by man's attempt at autonomy and independence. And that's what dictates most of the things that go on. Man's got to be independent of God entirely. That's it. And suddenly in the last days, this thing is revealed for all its true worth. It will be anti-God and anti-Christ in everything. In religion, I'll tell you, there'll be such a powerful religious system which will glorify man, but certainly won't glorify our God. There'll be a commercial system that is so thriving, they think that even if the sun was blotted out, they'll still survive. They're wrong, but they think it. There'll be a, a political system in which man gets all of the glory and it's mystery Babylon. And that's why this city is mentioned in Genesis 4 and these cities are mentioned here in Genesis 11 to show us the beginning of man's autonomous sinful nature as it, as it starts affecting the divine purpose. I love the next phrase, by the way, because this shows sarcasm. They're building a tower and a very tall one. Verse 5, And the Lord came down. I love that. <laughs> Praise God. You know? Yeah, marvelous. And the Lord came down, and I sort of imagine him having a, an odd look at this thing, you know, that this, these little ants of men are trying to build. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Do you notice how different this is from what people in the world are saying today? The people of the world think, if you can get everyone together, speak one language, get all the countries united, why, we'll have paradise. It's going to be the millennium all of a sudden. It's going to be the kingdom here on earth. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. God says, oh no. If man gets together, he says, and if man speaks one language, and if man gets unified, it's going to be the end of mankind. That's what God says. Entirely different as far as God is concerned. And notice what God does here. He's got to stop man, and he's got to stop man being so sinful. Here's what he does. Verse 7. Go to, he says, let us, isn't that lovely? Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. Let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. And all of a sudden, they're working away, building this tower, and all of a sudden, one chap says, oh, pass me the trowel, please. The other says, what do you say? And the other says, what, what, what do you mean? Uh, don't you? No, he's talking, hey, he's talking, God. What, what did you say? And soon they find that they're all talking different language. And I'll tell you, they're frightened, very, very frightened. And they start going up to people saying, can you lend me a trowel? No, not you too. And all these different languages. And all of a sudden, they find one. Oh, thank heavens, they've all gone mad. They say, yeah, oh, I'm so glad I found you. And then they go along and they say, oh, and you too. Great. And soon you had all these people coming together in little groups. And we, we know how many there were. We read that in Genesis 10, by the way. And they all came together in little groups. And when you've had such a frightening experience, the first thing you want to do is get away. <laughs> And God, in his marvelous purpose, said, if man won't obey me, I'll cause him to scatter. And he scattered him. And what happened? He got them into groups, nations, tongues, races. These are the groups that God developed. Now, you might say, but why did God do that? I'll tell you why. It's the same principle that boat builders use. A boat builder in the ancient day used to build a boat with a hull like that. Now, the trouble with this was, if it was holed by hitting an iceberg or a rock or something, the whole ship used to, to go under, you see? And God knew that if man was one, if apostasy broke out, it would spread like wildfire and he'd have to destroy the whole of the human race. So what did boat builders do? Well, they had some intelligence. So they've now built hulls so that they have several watertight compartments. So that if this compartment gets hold, the others still hold. 
You see, there's a different hold, by the way, there. Um, the others still are watertight, and the ship still floats. It may list slightly, but it's still floating. And what God did here, he said, as long as man is in different groups, if one group gets into apostasy, I'll only have to judge them, not the rest of mankind. You see, now that's clever. And, man, and God has put it into the heart of man to be different from his neighbor. Now man, however, is still determined that he is going to get together and build something. And you'll find all over the world there are groups trying to cause, you know, the whole earth to be united. They want man to be able to rule the whole earth from one central point. The League of Nations was an obvious thing. The United Nations today is an obvious group. They honestly feel that they are the ones who will soon unite the whole world and will establish perfect world order. God, of course, I think has a great joke at the United Nations. They can't even agree with one another, you know, all these little countries. They're always arguing, you know. And although there are good things that they do, the main objective, which is the unification of mankind, fails, 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 fails. You'll notice in the common market, it's not just a loose association. They're aiming for monetary union and political union and ahead total unity between the groups. Oh dear, oh dear, that's going to fail as well, by the way. God will not allow it. And you'll notice right in the last days, in, when the earth is described in the last days, you've still got nations, you've still got languages, you've still got groupings. God's purposes are going to go right through, praise his wonderful name. Esperanto, by the way, trying to undo what God did at the Tower of Babel. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. God is against it. And we've got to beware that we don't join anything that actually is trying in man's strength to unify. This is one of the reasons that we in the Chichester Fellowship will not join the World Council of Churches. We think it's man attempting to do what only the Spirit of God's going to do, unify Christians. And they're trying, they're bringing all the people who call themselves Christians, and by the way, everyone else. Oh yes, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the lot, let's all get together. Letter in the Telegraph a few days ago by a bishop saying, isn't it wonderful, we all worship the same God, call him different names, but it's the same God. It's all man's attempts to undo what was done at Babel. And so you see, this first period of history, Genesis 1 to 11, ends with man fairly safe as far as God is concerned, split up into different units. All right, let's progress through history. There's Genesis 1 to 11 and the seedbed of apostasy and the seedbed of mystery Babylon established there. At the end of Genesis 11, we've got different nations. And here is, is the marvelous sovereignty of God, for he then says, right, I'm going to choose one of the nations, and this nation, is going to, they're going to be my beloved people. They're going to be my missionaries to the rest of the world. I'm going to have dealings with that nation, and the rest of the world is going to learn through my dealings with them. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the descendants of Abraham. And the Jews were chosen as God's special, his peculiar people, praise God, to be his witnesses. Let's see that very quickly in Romans and chapter 9. Romans and chapter 9. And uh, beginning verse 3, where Paul is speaking about them. And he says this, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, that means God chose them sovereignly, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And there is God's special nation. And this nation dominates the next 2,000 years of history. So we have Genesis 1 to 11, about 2,000 years. The next 2,000 years, a missionary group called the Jews is established. At the end of this period of history, the Lord Jesus himself comes to them as their king. And you know what happened. He came, and we saw this in the last course, he came as the king of the Jews, and he came to his own people. Just to check that, by the way, turn to Matthew in chapter 10. 
Matthew in chapter 10, and let's see the instructions that he gave to his disciples. Verse 5 of Matthew 10. These twelve, it says, twelve disciples, Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles. I didn't come as king to the Gentiles, he said. I came as king to the Jews, and you've got to tell my people I've come. All right? Don't go to the Gentiles, nor into any city of the Samaritans. Don't enter into it. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here's your message. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does that mean? Well, to, to say to them, oh, by the way, the king's come. The king's come. He's, he's just coming. He's in Jerusalem now, right? And you'll be meeting him fairly soon. They had, by the way, about three and a half years to get through a fairly small geographical area with that message. The king has come. That is a message specifically for the Jews. If you'd said in these days to a Gentile, oh, the king's coming, he would have said, which king is coming? You see, that would have been his answer. Oh, the king of the Edomites? The king of this? The king of that? He wouldn't have understood. It was the Jews to whom this message was addressed. Your king is now coming like he said he would. Will you believe or won't you believe? And as there was apostasy at the end of Genesis 11, we see apostasy at the end of this period. For you know full well what occurred. At that point, they rejected Jesus and they, they put him on a cross and they murdered the very Son of God who was their king. Right? And as far as the Jews were concerned, as we're going to see next time, they entered into a period of judgment at that particular point. And what did God do then? Why? He raised up a new people for himself. Praise his wonderful name. And on the day of Pentecost, a group of people called the church came into being. And now God was going to have witnesses through this group of people called the church. He established them. He took them out from the Jews and out from the Gentiles. And they weren't Jew and Gentile anymore. They were a brand new body called the church of Jesus Christ. A brand new nation on the face of the earth. Hallelujah. In every other nation, but separated unto God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 10, and let's see this. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, and let's see that on the face of the earth today there are three major groupings. Three major groupings. You've got them listed there. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 32. Give none offense, says Paul, neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor, he says, to the church of God. All right, the church. Today, that's us. Fine. Now, we're up to date. What we've now got to ask ourselves is, okay, now that's past history. We see the seeds of certain rebellions that are going to come to pass. Is there any simple scripture that will tell us the thing that is to come? The answer is yes. There are some very, very simple scriptures indeed. So let's just trace it. We've got Genesis 1 to 11. The Jews, the Jews were cut off. Then you've got the church. Now, what is next on the timetable? And to see this simple passage, let's turn to Matthew 24 and read it through. By the way, I'm not in any way talking about when this is going to come, whether the church is going to see it or anything. That's for future time. Matthew, in a few weeks' time, actually. Matthew, <laughs> and chapter 24, and verse 29. And can you see that in this particular verse, verse 29, we have Jesus talking about something, and this thing has not yet come upon us in this day. Look what he says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And we begin with this word, the tribulation of those days. All right, now tribulation just means trouble. But if you go back to verse 21, we see something about this period. 
And it says here, For then shall be great tribulation, he says, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And it's saying that this period is going to be a period of trouble the like of which the earth has never seen. Now some people have taken this tribulation period here to be the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 66 to AD 70. The trouble was, that was just a normal period of destruction. In fact, it wasn't as bad as some of the destruction that the Assyrians had done. So verse 21 can't apply to the time that the Jews were thrown out of the land. Because it was bad, it wasn't as bad as the Assyrian days. This is a period which is so awful, it gains the name not of a period of tribulation, but a period of the tribulation. And it is the fact of the tribulation that goes on in it which has caused many to call it the tribulation and to give it a title. And that's coming. How do we know it's coming? Because it's followed on by an event which hasn't come yet. Read on again in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, it says. The moon shall not give her light, and look at this, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. In other words, the day is coming, the, the sun suddenly blots out, right? And all of a sudden people look up and the stars appear and they see them fall, seeming to fall through heaven. It's obvious that the earth is removed from its present orbit. And they see the stars almost collapsing down to the ground and over the horizon. And they're staggered. And they're afraid. But what happens? Verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, which of course Zechariah tells us as well, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And after the tribulation, therefore, we have what is called the second advent of Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself appears in the sky, praise God. His sign is seen on every part of the earth's surface. And that's what follows the tribulation of those days. You'll notice, by the way, in AD 70, it didn't happen. No, no. This is all future time from today, 1980. The second advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus, therefore, comes. And in those two verses, we've got the tribulation and the second advent. Uh, verse 31, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He gathers all the believers together into one place. And what does he do? Well, go on to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 24 and 25, by the way, deal specifically with this period of history. But have a look and see what the Son of Man does when he appears. So we've got the second advent of Jesus Christ. And verse 31, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come, it says, in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, the word is literally Gentiles, but of course we know from other passages of Scripture, which I will deal with during the course, that the Jews too are gathered together. He gathers all nations before him, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So we know that after the second advent of Jesus Christ, there is judgment and the believers are separated from the unbelievers. Believers are the sheep, the unbelievers are the goats. And that follows straight on the second advent. Okay, so there's, there's the judgment. The believers and the unbelievers are put into one camp. The unbelievers, by the way, are removed from the earth, and they're kept for judgment, which is a twinkling of an eye away from them. All right, but they're removed from the earth. And notice what he says to the believers. Right? Verse 33, And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. 
Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, he says, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the believers here go through then into the kingdom of God. So after the judgment comes the kingdom. When Jesus' rule is established by his return to the earth, the kingdom of God on earth. And notice, the believers go through and people the earth in the kingdom. Come on, he says, you believers, I've removed the unbelievers from the scene. Come through now and start living on the face of this earth. You're coming into kingdom blessings. Praise God. It's going to be perfect environment. I'm going to be king on Zion in Jerusalem, and I will be ruling, he says. And you people will come and people the earth. Praise God. They come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right, let's uh, go to Revelation and let's see just a few of the details of this. You see how quickly we're scooting through these things. In Revelation chapter 19, in Revelation chapter 19, we have the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right? which follows on the tribulation. Verse 11 of uh, Revelation 19. We're taking it <coughs> as it reads. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written, that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right? Now that is the advent of Jesus Christ onto the world history. All right. Chapter 20 deals uh, then with the judgment and the kingdom. Uh, I begin verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and he bound him 1,000 years. You remember we dealt with this 1,000 years to see whether it was literal or not. It's lovely that in this uh, particular section it's repeated time and time again, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. He takes hold of the devil at this judgment, so it's a judgment of angels as well, and he binds the devil. You cannot have perfect environment on the earth with the devil still around. And if only the United Nations would get that into their heads, they'd understand it. You see? You can't. And if only the church would get it into its head. You know, Jesus Christ himself has to return, and the devil must be bound up, praise God, and put away for a season. Oh, yes. He is the one who is wearing down the saints. He is the one who is causing the disturbance. And you can have all the social programs in the world. I tell you, you'll never get paradise as far as the earth is concerned. The devil's got to be dealt with, first of all. He's bound then, 1,000 years, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the 1,000 years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So we've got the kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is brought back. All right? I'll be explaining this in detail. Verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out to deceive the nations. We've still got nations even in the kingdom, by the way. Praise God. Still different groupings in the kingdom. And that's paradise, as far as God's concerned. And it says, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, 
to gather the, them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And even at the end of history, why, you've still got apostasy in the nations. One thousand years of perfect environment, and they're still anti-Christ and anti-God. You see? And honestly, providing people with a television set and plenty of food and the best education and plenty of school books and all the rest, it does not produce good people. It does not produce godly people. No, it doesn't. It's only one thing that produces good people, and that's rebirth. Hallelujah. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And what our nation needs, like the nations of the world, is a major revival, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we'll have perfect environment, as far as the earth is concerned. All right? And you get revolution. The story goes on. The revolution at the end of the kingdom is put down once and for all, and we come to the end of history. And let's read it. Right? <clears throat> I'll read verse 9 of Revelation 20, first of all. They went up on the breadth of the earth, compassed the camp of the saints about, there are believers in those days, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then you've got the details of the judgment that occurs. Chapter 21 tells us, well, as much as we are going to know until we get to be with the Lord. After all that, in chapter 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And at the very bottom, we come to the new heaven and the new earth. But you see the story. It begins with apostasy, and it ends with apostasy. It begins with God's grace, it ends with God's grace, but then his judgment, because the people reject God's grace. There is a sweep through history. From this time on, we're not going to mention Genesis 1 to 11, except in passing. Next week, we're going to ask the question, do the Jews still have a future? We're also going to be talking quickly about the church. But most of the course from now on is going to deal with the tribulation, the characters, the world affairs, the battles of the tribulation, the second advent, the judgment, the kingdom, and the new heaven and the new earth. I leave you with bated breath until we meet again. God bless you all. Amen. <laughs>